Hello, everybody, and welcome back to Synergy Cast. I'm your host, Sonia Joffer, and I am really excited to share the lovely and super impactful conversation I got to have with one of my childhood friends, Alia Munji, who I recently got to reconnect with because of this podcast. So I'm super excited to share this conversation with y'all. Some of the things we discussed today are her career in law, her perspectives on BIPOC in politics, the challenges that came with growing up as South Asian women and first generation, mental health in our cultural community, and how we can start breaking down the stigma of just talking about it. Some background on Alia is she also identifies as coming from the same religious community as me. We were both raised as a smiley. So for those of you that don't know what that is, Ismailism is a sect of Islam under Shiaism. So feel free to look that up or Google it if you want to learn more. Um, but yeah, please check out Alia on her Instagram and Twitter. She uses her platform a lot to spread awareness and share a lot of fun content about her life and living in D.C. as well. So feel free to DM her or follow her on Instagram and Twitter at Alia underscore Manj. That's at A-L-I-Y-A underscore M-A-N-J. And you will find that in the episode notes too. So without further ado, I'm going to play the conversation that we had. And I hope you all enjoy it as much as we enjoyed recording it. Thank you so much for coming on. I'm really excited to have you on as a guest and welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for having me. Of course. Um, so yeah, I just want to start off by like doing a little introduction for the audience. And I know you, I think we met like when we were teenagers. I think mm-hmm. I was like 12 years old when we met. And I, I was like we were, 13 or 14. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So that was like, I think like 10 years ago or like over 10 mm-hmm. years ago, which is crazy. Um, but yeah, we met at like a summer camp as a part of our religious community And I think that's the last time I remember like really connecting with you. And then, but I've been following you on social media since then. And I've seen you doing like do some amazing things. Like I know you recently graduated from law school at Marquette University in 2019. And since then, you've been working in Washington, D.C. on Capitol Hill. And I also see you like using your social media as a platform to like share information, like Every time a Supreme Court decision comes out, you like do these amazing breakdowns. And like, (laughs) I just want to let you know that I think that is awesome. Like, especially for someone like me who like doesn't know much about law or policy at all. I find those super helpful. And I'm sure like your followers do as well. So, um, yeah, I just want to let you know that's amazing. Thank you. Yeah, I'm glad it's useful. (laughs) I always get nervous posting them. (laughs) Hell yeah. Um, And also, so what got you into law? Sure. My name is Alia Munji. I am from Brookfield, Wisconsin, which is a suburb outside of Milwaukee. And then I went to college and law school at Marquette University, um, which is also in Milwaukee. And in the past year, I've moved to D.C. So very Milwaukee-grown, Midwest love type of mentality, Um, but also loving D.C., loving the diversity here, and loving being a lawyer, even though it's very intimidating sometimes. 
Um, in terms of what got me into law, it's actually very when I start when I start reflecting on that question, it's kind of funny to me because a lot of it started with me being kind of resentful of the rules that my parents set when I was a child. Um, immigrant parents, both Pakistani, like they were very traditional in their views and beliefs. And growing up in a majority white community, I always just saw them as wrong because I thought what everyone else was doing was right. So it's very just black and white for me at that age. And so I always thought the law was something that was on my side in those situations. And so I started being interested in how I could use like the knowledge of the law to like argue back against my parents, except that kind of like made them, they didn't kind of, they thought I was using attitude, which I was. I mean, the whole basis of that is me being a brat in a way. Um, But it was very interesting to me, like, because I was interested in law and like just how the government worked that, that piqued my interest in student government in like fifth grade. And like, since then I've always done student government, I guess until now, no longer a student. Um, but my first memory is being like, oh, I'm hosting this meeting and we have to like plan this event and make an agenda. And what does, what do the students want? How can we communicate what the students want with the principal of the school? Um, and that's not like straightforward law, but it does impact like the type of how laws are made pretty much. And when it's like on a school level, it's just the school rules. And when university, it's university policy. Um, but that's something that I always enjoyed doing. I enjoyed advocating for others, working with administration and students to like kind of make the general experience better. And so that definitely inspired me to enter the legal profession. Um, Now I don't necessarily work as a traditional lawyer. Like I'm not in court ever. A lot of people think I'm in court. I'm not. (laughs) I work on the Hill. So I work in a more policy oriented manner and in like law writing, law analyzing, um, oversight of laws. Um, And that's also legal work, contrary to what other people think. But yeah, it's not what I thought I would be doing when I entered law school. Um, But I really enjoy what I'm doing now. And I think it continues my, like, I guess, pattern of wanting to do advocacy for others. Right. Yeah. Thank you for sharing all that. That was... I can definitely relate to the whole like immigrant parent thing, you know, like we both come (laughs) from like South Asian community. Um, We're both from the same religious community and like the listeners can't see this, but I'm wearing my made by immigrants. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Cause I think that's real. Like, I think like it's very true that like our experience as first generations even has such an and even being raised by immigrant parents has such Mm -hmm. a big impact on what we do in our futures and just like everything in life even like Mm -hmm. in our careers outside of our careers it just impacts our perspective on basically everything yeah um yeah so I definitely appreciate you sharing that it's very real it brings a lot of pressure I think in a way that I didn't know how to articulate until recently because being first generation, not only in this country, but also someone to get a higher education is just another set of obstacles that I didn't know that other people didn't have to go through. Like I just assumed, I think that 
everyone knew everyone had to do their own FAFSA and everyone knew who to reach out to for like college help and all of these things. And it's just like, no, if your parents didn't go through that, they're doing the best they can. I mean, my parents were like very adamant about me doing these things, but it's much different when they haven't gone through it themselves. And like, I am grateful that I have made it this far with them because they really always pushed me to do it. And even if they didn't know how to do it, I had to do it. <laughs> yeah, totally. Um, I definitely resonate with that. And like, also, um, and like, if you agree, or if you relate to this too, I remember I can relate to the sense where my parents also didn't know about like how to go through the whole college process and stuff like that. I was lucky because I have an older sibling who's like three <laughs> years older than me. So he was kind of like, someone that I leaned on for that. Um, and then also I found myself leaning on outside support systems, like outside of my family and my parents as well. Um, so yeah, just like finding that support wherever you can and just using what you got around you. Yeah, this is probably, I mean, a lot of people assumed I was a teacher's pet. I kind of was. <laughs> I had just great relationships with teachers in high school. They were homies. They were my advisors for whatever clubs I was in. And they also... I think they treated me like an adult. And I like that because my parents didn't treat me like an adult. I was treated like their child and which is totally understandable, but finding guidance from other teachers in high school was so important because there weren't many people in like the smiley community in Milwaukee that I could reach out to for like college guidance. Um, but just having all these people, all these teachers, all these educators that were so invested in my success was really like essential to where I am today. Right. Yeah, definitely. I kind of, when I graduated law school, I was thinking a lot about the people who kind of got me here. And I went all the way back to like my third grade teacher. And I just like made a list of all these like women, because in the most part, it's been women. And it's just very interesting to me because um, I know you're going to, we're going to chat about mentorship a little later, but mm -hmm. I didn't have women of color like guiding me until much later in life. And so it's just like a lot of white women giving me guidance. And that's not a bad thing, but I think it definitely shaped um, how I saw myself and how what I thought was acceptable for where I wanted to be in the world. And I'm like very grateful for them. So I kind of made like this list of women from third grade and I messaged like all my old teachers. <laughs> I know still a teacher's pet <laughs> on like LinkedIn or Facebook, wherever I could find them just saying like, thank you. Like, I'd graduated law school is such a big deal. And most of them responded. Um, I was able to like get coffee with a few, but it was just great. Right. Like you recognize what you probably didn't recognize at the time, like how impactful their guidance and their like just general belief in your success was. Yeah, that's awesome. And by the way, shout out to all of the teachers' pets out there, because <laughs> we're very <laughs> undervalued. I was also one growing up and made fun of it a lot, um, <laughs> made fun of for it a lot. Mm -hmm. But yeah, I think I think that's awesome. I think that's cool that you like got a list together and then you got in touch with them. Because yeah, you're right. Like we don't realize at that young age how impactful this teacher, this mentor is going to be in mm -hmm. our lives. We're just kind of like, oh, yeah, they're just here to teach me and whatever. Yeah. Know? But yeah, that's that's awesome. I'm glad you got to do that. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Um, so also, I wanted to ask you what kind of I think you mentioned a little bit, but what kind of law do you practice or want to practice in the future? So right now I focus on like tax it 
tax policy as a general thing. Like I'm not writing the tax code, but my type of work is a lot of uh, is doing oversight of like the IRS code and things that like Treasury and IRS are doing. It's also more generally like the legislative procedure. So how things are passed in the House and the Senate and the weird rules around all of that. So it's like parliamentary in a way, it's policy in a way. Um, I only had one class in law school about how the Hill works, really, and it was just called legislation. Mm. And so I, it's not like I didn't feel prepared, but I was like, this is not what I learned in school. Um, so it's a very different world, but I enjoy it. Um, I like the tax policy aspect of it. I think that tax policy impacts a lot of the social issues that we care about. And one of the examples I always give is like before gay marriage, that was like an IRS code thing. When people filed their taxes, they couldn't be filed together if it was like two men or two men. And then we had to uh-huh. like change the IRS code to allow for that. And I just think that's wow. like something to think about um, when you're thinking about tax law, because it sounds super boring. And also, I don't know if this episode will be released before July 15th, but that's that's tax day this year. So do your taxes. <laughs> um, I have yet to do my taxes, which as a tax person, I'm like, oh, I'm that person now. <laughs> but I'm going to do them. So you guys should do. Um, but it's other a lot of interesting things because the committee I work on is the one that any legislation that creates or impacts revenue so like whether it be trade through any sort of social programming like EITC anything with like children foster care um, things like that health a lot of Medicare Medicaid issues they all go through our committee because they create or impact revenue in some sort of way so I've learned a lot about how important the tax code is and it's a crazy thing to say because you're like, okay, still the IRS, like everyone makes jokes about the IRS growing up and the IRS sucking. And I'm like, oh, right. there's like a lot going on here. <laughs> but yeah, so that's where I'm at now. I don't know if I'll stay in that area forever. I definitely have a lot of other interests. Um, I don't think I want to use my legal education to be a lawyer forever. I definitely am interested in the business side of things. I'm interested in advocacy for women in terms of like education access especially on an international level and I'm also very interested in fashion so like if the opportunity comes my way to be a lawyer for a magazine like I'd be down for that that'd be so cool I didn't even realize that was like a thing right so I was like looking into it it's like not it's definitely not my wheelhouse right now because a lot of it is like copyright issues okay but I'm like I could learn yeah (laughs) I could do that yeah definitely thank you for like breaking all that down because again like I don't know much too much about law and stuff like that and policy and stuff so thank you for that breakdown that was super helpful and yeah I think like also I didn't realize there were so many layers to law too and there were so many different Mm -hmm. avenues of it as well so that's very interesting to hear all that it's crazy that when I was applying to law school I just assumed I'd be like in court but there are so many, like, if you want, if you just, like, like the idea of being a lawyer, you could probably find the job to use that legal degree that doesn't involve you talking in front of a judge. Because <laughs> there's a lot of people I went to law school with that 
did not want to public speak and you would probably be like, oh, then you're going to be a bad lawyer. No, like you can work on contracts. You can work on like patents. It's a lot of paperwork and communication. You could work on the Hill and do like legislation making or you could do be like do advocacy. Like there's so many different avenues you can take. And the other thing about a law degree that I love is that just adds a credential wherever you go. And it's not like if I want to work at a company and it's not to be a lawyer there, it's to be like a business person or an advisor, like that law degree will add a level of credential and like just validity to my background because I maybe will not have like the business undergrad or that everyone else has, but I have the law degree and that shows that I have the ability to think in a certain way that would be useful. Right. Um, yeah. Little yeah. shout out to law school. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's awesome. Thank you for sharing all that. And um, also, like I heard in your response and like when we've talked outside of this as well, um, and I've seen on your social media, like you talk a lot about politics and um, <laughs> I'm kind of realizing I learned from you, too, that like politics and law can go hand in hand so much. And um, also circling back to when we were talking about the representation of South Asian uh, people. Um, so I'm really curious to hear, like, what South Asian people in politics do you look up to or gain inspiration from? So that is a very good question. Uh, before I've always been interested in politics, but I don't think there was, like, a South Asian person that I looked at as, like, someone... Um, that would be like a mentor to me besides Bobby Jindal, who had like an Indian sounding name. And then I looked him up and he used to be the governor of Louisiana and he's an Indian guy. <laughs> so I was like, okay, cool. Right. Like that's one person, but I was not a fan of his politics at all. So I was like, okay, well breaking the barriers of like becoming a South Asian in politics is already one thing. And in the Ismaili Muslim community, and I think in the South Asian community as a whole, like being a lawyer or especially a politician is not like one of those coveted careers. It's like be a doctor, be an engineer, be a whatever. And it's like, OK, well, being a lawyer is legit. But then it's like be a corporate lawyer, do defense yep. law, make a lot of money. And like politics is just none of those things. Like, right. You can make a lot of money after a career in politics working for a lobbying firm, but you're not making that now. Right. Um, so I feel like I always went through that internal battle. But I like the people I thought about that I could like look up to in politics were usually black women because I was like, OK, well, there aren't one. There's there's some women and then on the hill and I just couldn't really relate to like white women on the hill because it's such a different background and experience and so the women I looked up to were typically black women like Kamala Harris like love her Shirley Chisholm first black woman in congress just like some powerhouses like Maxine Waters right now still on the hill my rep in Milwaukee is Gwen Moore so like all these women had to fight a little harder and a little more to get to the places they are. And I knew that if I wanted to be in that same space, I would have to fight harder and fight a little more um, than other people as well. And so those are the types of people that I was inspired by just hearing them speak, hearing them bring communities together, hearing them win, like mm -hmm. seeing them win was awesome. And then like other people that I looked up to as like women minority attorneys were like Kuma Abedin. And if you don't know who she is, she was an advisor for Hillary Clinton. She started as an intern in like undergrad and now is one of her most coveted advisors. But 
she's not like me at all. <laughs> it's got like she's Indian. She has like South Asian descent, right? But both of her parents super educated. She n- knew she was going to get higher education. She walked straight into this like not walked. She earned this White House job. Um, and like that's not a woman that would be accessible to me. That's not someone that I would see like maybe at a networking event or whatever. Like me and Huma Abedin are miles away from each other. And that's like right. similar to Amal Clooney. It's like, oh, another brown woman in like the international law space. Like I love the fact that all the advocacy she does um has such like a positive social impact. And she's another brown girl, but the <laughs> I mean, and then she married George Clooney, which is like still really cool. Which I'm like, Ooh, cool, <laughs> like George Clooney. But um, I knew him all before then. <laughs> um, when she was she was a lawyer. Um, but she's badass, and I loved seeing these women. And I was like, I those were the two women I'd be like most like me. But when I look into them, we have nothing in common besides like being minorities from South Asia. Yeah, <laughs> like, uh, or she's Lebanese, so the Middle East, but that's kind of crazy. So, like, for now, I feel like it's still a lot of Black women that I look up to in terms of the political world, but I want there to be more South Asians and I want there to be a lot of other representation on the Hill. Um, I think everyone or most people are familiar with like the squad that got elected in the 2016 election. So that's like AOC, Rashida Tlaib, Ayanna Presley, mm-hmm. um, Ilhan Omar. And it's just like, that was great for me to see because I mean, none of them are Pakistani. None of them are Indian. Rashida Tlaib's Muslim. So that was really cool. So it was Ilhan Omar, but it was like, okay, like look at all these different women and like in America in 2020, a space where I still think I couldn't be elected to public office because of like all the hate they did it. And like, that's right. super inspirational. And they also didn't come from the backgrounds. I don't think any of them are lawyers. I don't think so. I, I don't know that for sure. I don't think they are. <laughs> but something that I always thought for my entrance into politics is that I had to do it like the traditional white male way, which was to go to undergrad, go to law school, and then like go to the hill. And that's just not the case with, like, our generation of politicians. Like, you can go do whatever and then run for office because your experience will help to, like, the Hill to whatever state legislature, city council you're working in, that the people who went straight from law school to that area or straight from law school and ran to the office just don't have. Like, we need different people. We need different life experiences in our legislative bodies in order to be more effective and, like, because our legislative bodies started with like just rich white males that's why some of our laws are the way they are because they just didn't know (laughs) they just didn't know and they didn't care um so i hope that i can have a positive impact for other south asian women on the hill and kind of serve as like a mentor in any way needed and not just south asian women other minority women in general um i am very blessed that the committee I work on now, super diverse. Like I started as a law clerk for them before I had officially started. So it was the summer before my third year of law school and all the lawyers I worked with, it was like a room of women that were diverse AF. Like that was like I love one that. of the most diverse rooms of women I had ever walked into. And I had worked at a law firm all throughout undergrad. I had all these different internships on like varying levels of government. And still like I had to go all the way to DC to like 
be in a room of just women lawyers that were minorities and be like, oh shit, like this is badass. <laughs> Hell yeah. No, that is super badass. Like that is amazing. And I think that it has such a big impact on the work we do is like our work environment as well. And when we walk into a room, like who we see, like, mm -hmm. do I, can I like relate to anybody here? And I think like, I can definitely relate to that because I'm in a very white dominated field as well. Like the field of art therapy is just basically, I don't know if this percentage is right, but it's basically like majority, I would say like maybe 80% to 90% white women. So, um, and like even my classrooms, it's just like majority white women, you know? So mm -hmm. I think that's, uh, has a really big impact too. It's like when you walk into your workplace or your environment and you see like people of color there as well, I think that's really impactful. And I think that's a really good point that you bring up as well too. Yeah. It's very powerful. And in like a super white suburb too right exactly yeah Naperville. i grew up in naperville okay, yeah. illinois which is definitely yeah it's super white yeah. suburb. you could say that so like sure. one of the things for me yeah i was like okay we both know that feeling is like when you're a kid and you want to fit in you kind of like make yourself more white because you think that's right i know i touched on this before that my views were very like this is right this is wrong my brown parents are wrong like we need to be more white and like that was definitely a form of like internalized racism against myself because until I walked into a room of other women lawyers that were totally being themselves were not afraid to share their backgrounds weren't like kind of making their experiences more white or different or afraid to talk about their different like lifestyles growing up I always thought those were things that I couldn't share in a space like that in a professional environment because in the white world I grew up in, there are certain social expectations and forms that you have to follow to fit in to get anything done. And that's just not the case. And I didn't realize that until way later in life, or I guess it's like not that late, but like much later. And I wish that if I had known when I was like in undergrad and like super involved in student government, but still no one in those rooms looked or sounded like me, had the same background. And so I molded how I spoke and how I communicated and the experiences I shared. Like I didn't share everything. I didn't like, you know, I didn't want to be the different one. And like, until I walked in that room, I was like, wait, it's okay to be different because none of these people are judging me. Everyone is very aware that we come from different backgrounds because they're used to working with people from different backgrounds. Like the world is not, everyone does not live in the same world. I feel like, I don't know. That sounded mm -hmm. a little weird, but no, that's, I don't know. It's just, yeah, it's just crazy to me how much of a difference that makes. And then because I recognize that I understand how women in college now, women in high school now, even women in like middle school or elementary school. I don't know. I have a neighbor. <laughs> I live down in DC. Her name is Christy. She's 10 years old. And I had not met her until like the quarantine started. I would just hang out on my porch a lot. And she would like talk to me over the porch is six. Like, I think it's more than six feet away, but we would just chat for so long. <laughs> we chatted for like hours. That's so and cute. I love that. <laughs> she's adorable. She like told me about her life and her like drama with her friends and just different like experiences she has being she's a, like a young Latina girl like she is different from her peers she has other Latina friends but she's like why do people do this or I didn't know I could do that but like different things like that where you're like oh no I'm gonna tell you now you can do that and that's gonna be good for you <laughs> um, yes. and it's funny I don't know I used to teach REC so 
that is for those who don't know um in the Ismaili community, we had Saturday religious classes, religious education center, like similar to Sunday school, except on Saturdays. Um, and because I was one of the few students in my grade, I graduated very early and then started teaching while I was in undergrad. Um, and my students from like fourth grade to seventh grade, I taught them. And these are two young Ismaili girls limited in what their experiences of the world are. And I was always like, no, you guys can do more. You can like do this, like, look at this. I'd watch these TED Talks and we'd talk about, I mean, I'd follow the curriculum, but I would go beyond and I would say, look, we have, this is like what you're reading here. And I'm going to show you like the social issues that go with this and how you can have a change. And I was also like, y'all need to talk back to the boys. Yeah. (laughs) These girls would be like, this guy said that girls can't do this. And me being like the fucking 21 year old instigator I am at that time. I was like, I didn't swear in front of them, but I was just like, you, they cannot do that. Like men and women are equal. And I'm going to teach you how to argue back. And so we'd like write how they could like refute all these guys. points. And like for them, like I'm the only Brown woman now lawyer that they know. Right. right. Cause like the community is so small there. They have other professionals around them but no one in like an advocacy space and I just when I think back on that I get kind of emotional because one of the students well both of them we still keep in touch one of them like texts me every time she's like watching Rachel Maddow with her mom or like talking about the election and I'm just like you're a little political (laughs) I love this like you're so politically active she like did one of her essays on like disparities in the corporate world for payroll between men and women and I was like I didn't even wouldn't even go over that like you did that on your own yeah (laughs) so just things like that like having someone in the space that you know is there it just makes you your ability to enter that space navigate that space and just being able to articulate yourself so much easier and I see that in those two girls and I see that in Christy and I just know that like that's something we need more of whether it be Asian women, more Black women, more just the Asian women in general, Latinas, of course, like everyone. We need more of everyone. Exactly. Yeah, I think it is. I want to start off by just like saying I think it's so beautiful how like you can be a mentor to like even like little girls in our own religious community, in the Smiley Mm -hmm. community, even in the larger South Asian community, or even as you mentioned, just like BIPOC in general. Um, because you're right like a lot of people assume that like oh that person's brown so you gotta agree with them and mm-hmm. it's like no like just because we we share the same skin color the same culture doesn't mean that I have to align with everything they're saying so mm-hmm. and I think like I think we had some mentors growing up but you know there's always room for improvement and mm-hmm. I think it's like up to us to this is like something that I talk about a lot but it's up to us to use whatever privileges that we did have to kind of push things a little bit forward and kind of like set the yes. bar going, you know? And I feel like you you are like a living example of that. Like you are <laughs> pushing things forward. You are out here telling these little girls, speak up for yourself, you know? And I think that's beautiful. And they're, they're like still reaching out to you. And that's just amazing. And like, I know like with Camp Mosaic too, which is that uh, summer camp that's a part of our religious community that we met at, Um, When I became old enough to be a counselor, I can relate to what you were doing. I would not follow the curriculum that they would give us. Like, (laughs) they'd be like, teach this activity. And I'd be like, 
okay, but I'm gonna put my own spin on yeah, it. Yeah, like, I would just do something your completely style. different. <laughs> and then my students would be like, or my participants would be like, wow, this is different. And then they'd go tell their other like friends at lunch, like, we did this in Sonia's group, and they'd be jealous. Like, they'd be like, can we join that group? Like, we just want to <laughs> learn about that stuff too. So I think that's great that you were practicing, like in therapy, we call it meeting the person where they're at. And I think that you were practicing that without even knowing or being aware of that that is a concept or something. Yeah, you just I had, had this been... like inside drive to do that. I think mm-hmm. that's beautiful. Yeah. And that's like, now that you say that, I'm just thinking about how relevant that is. I'm, of course, I'm going to bring it back to politics in politics. <laughs> um, and that a lot of people, I think now communities are a lot more divisive and they're like, if someone is a Republican, then they don't believe in X, Y, and Z, and they don't believe in my existence. And I just, for me, that feels wrong because I know a lot of Republicans and they're very respectful people and they respect my existence and understand the issues, but they grew up in such different backgrounds that like they have different views. So I try to meet them where we're at. We try to figure out like what we do have in common. We have these open conversations and I understand more about them. They understand more about me. And I think it like both people grow in that situation. Um, and if that was happy, happening on like a larger level, I think things wouldn't be as divisive as they are. But I also understand the need to like be divisive in certain situations in order to like effectuate change. So it's kind of like it's a hard thing for me to navigate sometimes when politics is so divisive. Exactly. Yeah. And I think that's a really good point that, you know, we have to meet people where they're at in all types of situations, you know? And I think that's like what you said, that's how we grow. That's how both people Mm -hmm. can leave that conversation growing from it, learning something from it, and just Mm -hmm. realizing, okay, how can I do better? And even though things are so divisive, what what connects us? What Where's like the middle ground? Like, where can we meet each other? Because it's like, at the end of the day, like, I feel like there's always going to be divisiveness, um, but as long as we like have that mutual respect for one another and find that middle ground with one another, I think that's like really important. Um, so I really like, like how you brought that up. Thank you. Yeah. And I do like what you said about how the conversations work is so true, but I also am going to acknowledge that it's not easy. Like oh. I've left a lot of these conversations so angry especially when I think I'm like that's just dumb how could you not see it the way I do and then like later I reflect and like kind of put things into like a larger context it makes more sense but like it's (laughs) it's really hard to like go and you have to be super intentional going into a conversation knowing that you're gonna listen and then like evaluate and then you can still think someone is wrong, but you don't have to disrespect them. And that's definitely something that I'm like, I need to not get mad (laughs) talking (laughs) about certain things. And like, not only with other people, but like, I mean, shit with my parents too. Like, I'm trying to meet them where they're at. I'm known to have an attitude with them. So I'm just kind of like, tone it down, listen, (laughs) put it in context. (laughs) Like, I don't know, like maybe 10 more years and that'll be a skill that's just like so ingrained in me that I'm just a generally calmer person. (laughs) Right now, it's hard to get, like, I know I'm not right about everything, but when I'm like arguing with someone in my head, I'm like, 
I'm always right. And like, that's just not the case. <laughs> Why can't <laughs> you get this? <laughs> yeah. Like, I'm like, oh, how can you're so dumb? You're so wrong. And it's like, no, I don't say those things, but I'm thinking them. And I'm like, no, I'm, I'm glad I didn't say them because that would have been wrong. <laughs> but yeah, it's, it's hard to do that. And it's hard, whether it be politics, whether it be your parents, your friends, like just like anything that you have differences with people, it's, it's, it's a skill. It's a learned skill. <laughs> Definitely. I like, thank you so much for acknowledging that because it is difficult as fuck to have these conversations. Like it takes so much energy, like, and it's very exhausting mm-hmm. and it takes a lot of like, I feel like self-awareness as well. Like, and what you just mentioned, like when I'm having these conversations, I know that I'm having these thoughts in my head, which I think is perfect. I think we need to normalize having weird thoughts in our heads because <laughs> that is like super normal it's um, our brain processing exactly yeah and it's like a reflex you know it just it just goes off but like as long as we don't let it translate like into our actions and stuff which mm-hmm. is I feel like a work in progress as well like I think it's like a muscle you know like you have to exercise that mm-hmm. you have to practice that and I think like having that self-awareness and then also like you spoke on this, but like grounding yourself, you know, like when you are, you notice that you're getting heated, you're getting exhausted, or you're getting mad, having that self-awareness to ground yourself, like, okay, like, I can't have this conversation with this person, if I'm not grounded, if I'm not centered, Mm -hmm. Um, and then we won't get anywhere, you know, so Mm -hmm. I think like, I think that's a really good point. So thank you. Like you're going to school to do that with people. I'm like a whole nother level. <laughs> I'm like, <laughs> that's exactly. literally a skill that people go to school for to help other people. Like, so kudos exactly. to you for picking a career path where you will always have to stay grounded. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Yeah, no, it's like, it kind of calls me out and holds me accountable. It's like, mm-hmm. so if I'm going to preach this to my clients or the people that I'm working with, then I gotta, I gotta like practice what I preach, you know, like I can't be yes. walking around like just off the hinge if like I'm telling other people to like stay grounded and stuff. <laughs> so it kind of like holds me accountable. And yeah. like, I just like, I got into the field because I wanted to just learn more about myself and my family mm-hmm. and like how to keep myself centered. So, um, and also I wanted to help other people as well, but mm-hmm. yeah, I think, yeah, that's, that's a really good point too. It, it helps me very much. <laughs> yeah. But I also wanted to like talk about circle back to the internalized racism point, because mm-hmm. I feel like there's like a lot that to discuss there. Like, I feel like like that's a whole, that could be a whole episode in mm-hmm. itself. maybe even a whole podcast. <laughs> I think that's like a really important point you brought up. And like, I definitely, I would love to hear some, maybe you or if you are open to sharing some of your experiences with that um, or how it impacted you and your perspectives in life. And I definitely can relate to that too. Cause like growing up in, in Naperville, which was a white dominant dominated area. I experienced a lot of internalized racism and I mm-hmm. didn't even know there was a word for it. Right now that I'm older and like I'm learning more about this stuff, like I'm realizing that that's there's a name for it, you know, and like I definitely did that. Like I would like be scared to speak my like our our home language Urdu in public. Mm-hmm. Um, I remember like shushing my parents, like if they they would speak to me in Urdu in public in the grocery store or at school or something, I'd be like, 
don't know just talking English you know like I don't want to get bullied you know and that was like it wasn't my fault I was doing that but it was more out of like a survival it was like a survival skill it was a survival strategy because mm-hmm. I remember like growing up and if I would wear Mandy to school like if I went to a wedding over the weekend and then it was it was still on Mandy is like henna um and if I like if it was still on me when I went to school um the next week I would get bullied for it like people would, oh like, yeah people would be like why'd you draw on yourself with marker like yeah that's like <laughs> Like, Are you I, serious? I sat there for like three hours. <laughs> Someone put Mandy on me. Like this is not marker, bro. But yeah, that's very that's very real. Yeah. So one of the things that when you asked that question came to my mind immediately was just like my name. Um, growing up in school, I my teachers called me Aaliyah, and I never corrected them. I thought that was fine. Um, because I didn't want to make it any harder for them because I already knew I was different. Like I would walk into these spaces at school knowing that my parents didn't fully come from the same background as all these other students, me like walking it. I just don't have the same experiences as other people. Like I don't have the same, I guess, like cultural awareness of the white community at that point. Um, And I think about like when, my parents would come to like talk to my teachers for conferences or whatever. My teachers would call me Aaliyah and they didn't correct them either. Like, <laughs> right. and like for me, I was like, okay, it's fine. Like that must be fine. And like, I mean, it happens with my parents' names too, where people will mess them up. I know my mom, her name is Shamsha. It's spelled Shamsa. Some people at her can even say it. So they call her sunshine. And I was like, when I was younger, I was like, I guess that's, that's not even close. <laughs> So, like, at school, I was Aaliyah. At home, I was Alia. I was afraid to have people over at my house and hear my parents call me Alia because then they'd be like, what? But then they'd just, like, call me Aaliyah still. And it wasn't until probably... And people still got Aaliyah wrong, which was annoying. So I was like, whatever. <laughs> um, well, and, well, I guess I thought about this now recently. When my little sister hears this, she's going to think it's funny. Uh, because I FaceTimed her, I had this thought. She's like, why are you even thinking about this? So, like, my name is pronounced Alia Manji. And I, when I'm in primarily white spaces, I'll say Manji because that's what it is. And my parents will do the same. And it's just never wrong, right? Like, we're, like, the Manji family around other people. And then, like, in South Asian communities, we're Manji. And, like, right. it's not that different. But I was thinking about a name. We talked briefly about like Supreme Court cases. And I was like, oh, I'm thinking about making like a YouTube channel. What would I call it? And some people call me Mange. And I was like, that's M-A-N-J. But that's just not my name. <laughs> like, it's Mungie. So I was like, I went through this crisis. I was like, Sarah, do you ever, I like FaceTimed her. I was like, do you ever think about that? How like people just say our name as Mange and we just don't correct them. And that's just like normal. And like mom and dad think it's normal. So I think it's normal. <laughs> like, mm-hmm. And that's not anything I ever like, I don't think I had like a deeper conversation with my parents about that because for them, it's just like, why would I correct someone? Like right. they're like, I'm, I'm just going to like, let it ride. Right. But now I'm like, I don't, I still don't think I want to like, correct people on my last name being Munji because that just seems like too complicated especially at this point considering that I didn't like my peers didn't know that my name was actually Alia in high school until like the end of 11th grade and that was because my dad came to pick me up on Friday it was senior bingo for student council so we had all these senior we had all these senior citizens here 
And my dad like came to pick me up after because I had to go to Jamathkana. I had to go to Friday prayers. True. <laughs> so I had to leave early. And my dad like called me Alia when he like walked in. My teacher's like, your name's Alia? And I was like, yes. <laughs> like, <laughs> and then like, she didn't really bring it up. She was just kind of like, oh, like I'd never knew until, unless your dad said that she, the next day she like called me in. Well, I guess the next week since Friday. You need to have people start calling you Alia. Alia is not your name. Like, I don't understand why you do this. Like, that's just wrong. And I was like, okay, she's like, and I had her for Spanish. And so she told the whole Spanish class. And then she told everyone on student government, because she was also my student government advisor. She's like, just letting you know, her name's Alia. And I was just like, <laughs> okay. And like, exposed. I know. I was like, I felt like I had to apologize. But now that I think about it now, like, I'm just like, y'all did this to me. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. <laughs> like, what? Yeah. Um, yeah. So when I started college, I was for sure Alia. Like, now I correct people and whatever. Not on my last name, just on my first name. But people from high school still call me Aliyah. And it's kind of weird because I will respond to them in that way because I still respond to Aliyah because that's what I did till I was 17. And that's literally still a majority of my life. So that's one of like the internalized racisms I think about, which I think is like less, it wasn't like abrasive in a way, but I think it impacted how I thought about myself because another thing going to like all white suburban school was that I was so used to being around white people that I would like not forget I was brown, but like forget that people saw me differently because I could fit in so well with white people. Like mm. I knew how to charm the parents. Like I knew how to talk to my friends. I knew like I learned all the social etiquettes of being white so well that when my minorityness was pointed out, I got upset because I was like, why would you point this out? Because yeah. I'm literally just like you guys, right? Like, right. And, like, that kind of upsets me now when I think about it. But I still, like, I don't know. It's it's a weird thing to explain that I was, I guess, like, yeah, I was ashamed of being brown. And, like, that's not anything that was in my control. But I knew that people saw brown as lesser. And I didn't want to be seen like that. So if I couldn't change my skin color, I was going to do it through my behavior. And it's not like me embracing my brown behavior would have been, like, anything like an atrocity of like ruining social etiquettes but there's just it's like a different I definitely code switch when I talk to white people versus literally anyone else like definitely um just like bringing up cultural things bringing up like pointing out to people when they're talking about a certain like situation that like no I didn't grow up that way like I don't know these things I never heard queen like I don't know (laughs) yeah just like weird things like that um And so then when I was in college and it was a whole new group of people, but still majority white, it's fine, Marquette, Catholic school. (laughs) um, I had to like kind of relearn in a way that I was different because like I was like, oh, these are just like all the white people from suburbs that I grew up with. And like, no, I was actively seen as brown. Like, and that was just like a realization for me that I was like, I need to either like embrace my identity here or like I will be miserable Um, but it was also hard because, because I'd grown up around so many white people and like, I didn't have that many brown friends. Like I had other smiley friends in Chicago, like you were one of them, but like, we didn't really stay in touch through college. And it wasn't like a defining thing that I could go back to the brown community 
and like feel comfortable. Like I feel like at school, like there was a huge Indian population. I didn't really fit in with them because a lot of the Indian population there had grown up with a ton of other Indian people. Mm -hmm. And a lot of like the black students there had grown up with a lot of other black people. And it was just like, I was too white to enter these spaces, but too brown to be seen as white in white spaces. And so it was like this odd middle ground where a lot of like my minority friends were friends that also grew up in primarily white spaces. And I like don't know what that means in terms of like the minority experience in terms of like who you grow up around. But that definitely made a difference for like me being hyper aware of how I'm perceived in a space. And I would like not to think about how people perceive me based off my skin color, but it's just like a reality that I do have to think about that. And all other like by POC people have to think about and it kind of sucks, but here we are. (laughs) Yeah, no, definitely. That's very real. And thank you so much for like opening up and like sharing your own personal experiences. I know it can be like tough, you know, and it does require some energy to like talk about this stuff. So I appreciate you like spending time to like open up and talk about this stuff. Cause I think although it is tough to talk about some of the most toughest things to discuss are sometimes the most important to discuss as Mm -hmm. well. So I appreciate you for doing that. So thank you. Um, and definitely I like with, uh, when I think of internalized racism too, I think of like those backhanded compliments that I used to get growing up and that sometimes I still I still get and back in the day like in high school and middle school when I used to get these compliments I used to feel really good about myself like I used to be like yeah I'm doing something right like you know like I'm I'm doing it right like I'm whitewashing myself so this is good yeah and like some examples of that would be like people would always come up to me and be like you smell really good for a brown person like you don't smell like curry like those other people do and like oh my point God. to the other brown people in our school and like at the time I'm like yeah like thank you like yeah like, oh I'm doing it right right <laughs> I would feel so good about it but then now looking back I'm like dude that was so fucked up like how <laughs> how I felt good about like people basically telling me that I'm whitewashing myself you yeah know? that like oh you're one of the better brown people which I think exactly. is like a very hard it's like a toxic mentality that we've all experienced. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Yep. Um, something else that I want to bring up with this is like beauty standards. Mm-hmm. Um, when I was growing up, and I'm sure you did do <laughs> super thick fucking eyebrows, like oh, yeah. mustache early on, oh, hairy yeah. <laughs> arms, hairy legs, like all of the facial hair. Yep. Um, and you have curly hair. I my hair is naturally curly. In like fifth grade, I'm still remember this. Like I was just getting comfortable. I was like, I kind of dressed terribly as a kid, like <laughs> as we all did. And like my hair is so curly, I would just like put it up in a ponytail. When I was in fifth grade, my older sister was in eighth grade. So she was like in her, I'm going to mousse my hair phase. And so I was learning how to use hair mousse. Um, And I wore my hair down curly. It got so big. And it's like all the guys, like all these jocks were like called me a gorilla. And like that literally to this day sticks with me. And like, I don't know if that's like maybe something deep I need to process as to why I don't like wearing my hair curly, but I'm like, that's super fucked up because now so people want up. curly hair. People yeah. want thick eyebrows. Like my eyebrows are thick and like, so are yours. And like, I first started getting my eyebrows threaded, I get them so thin because like that was the beauty standard. And like, yep. I used to feel like I, well, I did, I would get my arms waxed because I was like, my arms are so hairy and like, 
da 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 and now I don't really care as much about my arms anymore because I'm just like I it literally does not bother me which it's kind of funny because my siblings still get their arms waxed and they're kind of like don't you want to and I'm like it's not something that like bothers me but if you're doing it for you do it but if you're doing it because other people think you're pretty like that's fucked up but it's just kind of annoying that now like the beauty standards that we grew up seeing as wrong are right um and now I'm like, okay, well, I guess, like, now I'm pretty because Kim Kardashian does this. I don't know. Right. Well, even in terms of, like, body size, a lot of South Asian people have, like, just in their genes, diabetes, high blood pressure. Like, the food we cook is just privy to these kinds of diseases. And I've always been a little overweight. And I think, like, having a big butt was something I was always insecure about. And then it like became cool. And then I was still really insecure about my big butt. And I was like, wait, but everyone's showing off their butts now. I don't know. I was like, yeah. I'm so uncomfortable with this trend. Can we go back to something else? Yeah. But it's like things like that. And even you brought up the main, the like henna tattoos before. Now those are all over like fucking festivals. And, For real? and I'm like, these Instagram bloggers are like doing their cool henna tattoos. And I'm like, Bitch, you were one of the people who made fun of me. Like, <laughs> stop. But there's also like an exoticizing of our culture, right? Like, yep. The clothes we wear are the sexy part of being brown. People want to be sparkly and dress up and like have a four day wedding. And I'm just like, okay, well, you also have to do all the stuff like that doesn't go with, like, that's not the sexy part, which is our traditions and culture and the food. Like, if you're in the outfit, I, you're damn well about to be eating with your hands. Like, right. <laughs> like, I don't know. So exactly. there's, there's a lot. That's a good question you asked. You're right. It could be another episode. <laughs> yeah, definitely. Definitely a lot with that. But again, I appreciate you like sharing um, and, you know, sharing your own personal experiences and stuff. And um, if you ever want to like come on in the future and discuss this further, I think that would I would be totally open to doing that. I love that. Like, yeah. Yeah, this is, like, so helpful for me to talk about, like, just having someone that knows what it was like mm -hmm. to relate, you know, I think that's really helpful. Um, and, like, definitely think that internalized racism plays a big role with mental health as well. Yeah. Um, and I know, like, you mentioned, like, in our community, there's a lot of, like, heart disease and diabetes and stuff. Mm -hmm. And now I'm learning um, in my art therapy program how much mental health and trauma uh, plays a role with heart disease as well mm -hmm. and it's in that book that uh, I recommended to you yes. we talking before body keeps the score by Dr. Vessel Vanderkolk uh, and um, that's what he talks about he's like there's direct correlations between people that have experienced trauma or even multi-generational trauma so mm -hmm. trauma you haven't experienced yourself but you know your family has or people your ancestors have that all impacts your physical health as well so i think that's really interesting and also would love to hear like if you have if you've like observed any patterns of mental health in our community mm -hmm. um would love to hear your thoughts on that as well yeah i think even the acknowledgement of mental health is very new in the South Asian community. And I think it's coming from a lot of people our age saying like, yeah. look, we need to talk about this because the generation above us, they struggle it. Like they yeah. have, they have all this trauma. And like, we, I think for sure have inherited that trauma, but we can see that like 
in the Ismaili community on like the bigger level, if you, your parents, they don't want to know if you have depression they don't want to know that you're anxious. They want you to think that like, because they made all this sacrifice for you to come for them to come here for you to like get this education there's no way you should experience those things right like yeah. we give you, you should everything. be grateful you have you like have... shelter over your head you have food <laughs> yeah. like and that's just like not the way it works but I do understand like the limited mentality because they didn't even have like the privilege of questioning some of their circumstances um like we do um but the fact that the conversation is becoming more mainstream is helpful but scary um I mental health has come up in my family on various occasions in terms of me I am in therapy I don't think my parents will listen to this but I don't like they knew I was in therapy because it would come up in like arguments like that I was going to see a therapist like in college I'd be like and I see a therapist and they're like why would you need to see a therapist where your parents you can tell us anything and I'm like clearly not yeah (laughs) like the fuck the fuck do you think that for but like that's something they won't like follow up with me on like I and I don't want to I don't want to talk about it with them but there's a lot of things that like therapy has helped me with and I think everyone should go to therapy Mm -hmm. but like that's not something I think will ever be like or maybe not in my lifetime the like South Asian message right like some communities are very open to it I think like white communities in general there's still a stigma but the parents will like send someone to therapy but just like not talk about it but they'll like pay for it and whatever like yeah in my family when I like sought out therapy like I was I couldn't even use my insurance for it like that was something I had to do on my own and it's just like a different level of support um but now that those conversations are happening more I feel a little more comfortable talking about it like I'll talk about it with my siblings um but I think in the older generations and even like talking to older people that are South Asian that have immigrated, like they experienced so much trauma, not only in their life, wherever they came from in my grandparents case, like Pakistan, mm-hmm. like the journey here and just like th- all the negativity, all like the questioning of whether or not they'll be able to survive in America. Mm-hmm. Like I never had to worry about that, but they have that stress on them all the time and continuously like my parents do like we came to this country to make it right so I'm just like oh my god like I can't imagine that level of stress I can only imagine because my parents came here I have to go above and beyond because otherwise I'm ungrateful right so if we as a community were more willing and open to like kind of acknowledge that there is trauma in being an immigrant yeah like I feel like that's like normal for me to say but like if I said that to my parents it'd be like what trauma (laughs) yeah what trauma you're a drama like that's what they say. <laughs> exactly yeah and like I think like mental health is still very much associated or mental getting mental health getting mental health is very much associated with being white um mm-hmm. even some of my like Latino friends my black friends they'll say like well our parents say that when people are dealing with certain issues like it's the white people that go to therapy like we just need to pray and I'm like, oh, my parents say that too, but I'm mad. Yeah. <laughs> um, but so those are definitely negative patterns in the acknowledgement of it. But I do think like people our age and I've seen like on a larger like social media scale and other like colleges and universities, there are groups 
specifically around like South Asian mental health because it's so stigmatized. Um, And I think that will help shift the conversation a little. It's going to be tough, I think, for parents to want to openly have that dialogue. I think if they get to the point where they can have it with their own children, that's just one step in even talking about it to the public because maybe your parents understand that you're going to therapy, but they're not going to be like, yeah, my daughter's in therapy. (laughs) I mean, not that they need to do that, but it's not something that they want other people to know because there's, it's still associated with shame. And so I don't know how to change that Mm -hmm. because I still, I think there's still shame that I have because it is so stigmatized about communicating my like background and needs to like and about them and about those experiences and how I deal with it now um to people in our community and even I guess like other friends but that's not because of the stigma that's just because they're judgy yeah right (laughs) but yeah it's a tough conversation to have yeah definitely I think you made some like really amazing points and it's it's very true you know like there's such a stigma in all communities regarding mental health, but specifically we can speak from our own South Asian community. There is such a stigma. Like if, if you are, like, if you go to therapy, it's like, well, what's wrong with you? Like, yeah, yeah you're right. Like, are you not grateful? Like we have a food over our head. Like, and then our parents yeah. will pull the whole, well, when we were growing up, you know, like um, my mom grew up in extreme poverty in India mm-hmm. and in Pakistan. So I always, you know, get that, like, you know, mm-hmm. like, I grew up in this environment. You, you know, you should be lucky. You should be grateful, you know. Um, and you're like, mom, you for sure probably had anxiety. <laughs> like, Oh, yeah. you, Yeah, definitely, girl. Like, let's talk about this. Come on. Um, but yeah, it's, it's very true. And I think that the point you made about like, if we forget about like being public about it, like that's that could be mm-hmm. like in the future or whatever. That's like another step. But like, <laughs> I think the first step you're right is just to have these conversations at home and mm-hmm. normalize having these conversations in your safe space, like Mm -hmm. in your comfort zone. Um, And like, even with your friends and stuff too. And I think like that took a lot for me too. And that's a big reason why I chose to go into the mental health field as well. Cause I'm like, I want to see, and what you said, how like it's a white to go to therapy is seen as a white person's thing. Mm -hmm. And I think that's real for many reasons, but also because majority of therapists are white people. Yes, that is so true. Yeah. So like, I know when I started going to therapy, I was like, I wanted to be a woman, first of all, Mm -hmm. and I wanted to be a person of color. Mm-hmm. And that was really important. Okay, good luck. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> and then like the filter, like when I put that filter on psychology today, it's like immediately majority of like the therapists just vanished and there's only like a handful. And I'm lucky that I live in a city like Chicago where there's like more diversity and stuff like that. So mm-hmm. I definitely have some privileges there. So I, I got to find a therapist that is a woman of color. Um but a lot of people don't have that privilege. A lot Mm-mm. of people don't have that access. So then what do you do? You know? Yeah. So uh, definitely, definitely. That's very, very true. Thank you for bringing all that up. Yeah. And I think that's interesting. I was also looking for like a woman of color for a therapist when I moved to DC. Cause I was like, Oh, I'm finally on my own health insurance <laughs> and very limited options. And then like, then some people don't take insurance and then it's like, Oh yeah. shit. Like, okay. So it's like, it's very, hard even once you have the access to find the right help um i think technology does help with some people with that there are like online resources people can use now um 
But that does also take like a lot of mental effort to get yourself to do that. Yeah. But yeah, like until there's more brown people who are therapists, I really don't think on a larger level, the conversation will be normalized. But like small situations, family, friends is definitely the right place to start. Exactly. And just like for me, what helps is just like repetitiveness. Mm -hmm. And so it's like, I go to therapy. Yeah, I go to therapy. I'm going to therapy. Mm -hmm. And just that repetitiveness, I feel like slowly, slowly, like people feel more comfortable hearing it once they've like Mm -hmm. heard it multiple times. So that's something that's really worked for me too. And well, it's like they've heard it multiple times and they like still know and love you. Like, I think that's the other thing because I, a lot of people who like, you want to think people in therapy are the ones having like a mental breakdown or like just really unhinged. And that's just not the case. Like you and I are very grounded in our actions are like Mm -hmm. functioning on a normal level most of the time. But it's like, we can have these conversations with our parents and they're like, Oh wait, if I know, if I didn't know she was in therapy, this would still be the conversation. Like she's still her. She's just in therapy. Exactly. Yeah. And there was a long period of time when I first began therapy. I've been in therapy for about like two and a half years now. And the first year I never talked like my parents knew I was in therapy, but they thought it was just a part of my schooling, like a part of my Mm -hmm. program. And I couldn't like I talked about this with my therapist. And I was like, dude, I can't talk to my parents about my therapy. Like, mm-hmm. I just can't because that's bad for my therapy. <laughs> like, it's like, <laughs> it's affecting my mental health talking to them about it. So there was a good year where I just avoided talking about it with yeah. my parents because it impacted my mental health in such a negative way. And that kind of taught me, like, what boundaries were, too. Like, how to mm-hmm. set up boundaries with myself. And um, also, like, self-care, too. Which I think is super important. Yes. Especially as, like, women of color. Um, especially a woman of color who have mental health problems and experiences. Mm-hmm. And are going through therapy. Are having these tough conversations. Are paving the way for those <laughs> that are coming um, after us, too. Um, and so, yeah, I would love to hear, like, what... What, what is your experience with self-care? How do you incorporate self-care into your life? That is a very good question. Um, I like to think it's like fun to think about self-care as like, I'm going to do a facial and go get a mani-pedi and like just chill, you know? Right. But I think the most impactful self-care for me has been like having routines and acknowledging that I need them. So like one of the things that I have to do every day is I have to exercise. Like that impacts how I function on a daily basis. And I know that if I don't exercise in the morning, like I have a groggy morning. I'm not as sharp. I just don't feel as energetic. And like for me, like even at the time when I don't want to do it, it's something that I have to do and that's self-care. And it's like doing the unsexy things that I think have the most impact. Yeah. I mean, it's like there's like little tasks that you put off for like months Mm -hmm. and then all of a sudden you do them and you thought it was going to be the worst thing ever and it took like 10 minutes like (laughs) me needing to think about those when I'm doing things is like very important but I also do think like I love doing skincare Mm -hmm. (laughs) and that's a part of it too but I just don't think that should define it Um, but that's been really helpful to me just like acknowledging routines and acknowledging that I need routines I think was really hard for me because I was like no I want to be a fun spontaneous person (laughs) which I'm like I can be but as long as I like 
eat my breakfast and do my work right <laughs> like, right like, <laughs> which is so that can be fun and spontaneous <laughs> yeah um but other self-care things I think is like you were talking about boundaries before I think like having boundaries with parents, having boundaries with friends, Mm -hmm. like those things are important because a lot of the time there's either pressure to not talk about anything at all or like talk about specific things. Um, But I think acknowledging that like, like you did, like, no, I don't want to talk about therapy with my parents because it'll make, it'll like impact me mentally. So I'm not going to, and then not feeling bad about it. right? Right. Because you set that boundary and you made it okay. And like, that was it like setting those boundaries and then not feeling guilty for setting them is like the next step because I think that's something for me when I first started like setting like I guess like smaller boundaries with people and how I take care of myself that I was like okay but I shouldn't like I should just like limit I should limit myself and I'm like no this is not limiting myself this is making it so I can be better right um so there's that um, what else do I like to do? I like to, I'm trying to get into journaling. Okay. Um, I use this journal called Silk and Sonder. It's a brown girl founder. Her name is Meha Agrawal. Ooh, I never <laughs> um, heard of that. Thank you I so love it. So you get a new one every month, recycled paper, all of that stuff. Like, and I, I save all of them, but it helps with, um, Like there's different, you can set up your week and you can set up a month. But one of the things I really like about it is that it has like a habit tracker. um, And that's like on a monthly and weekly level. And so I will set habits at the beginning of each month. And they're not like workout for 45 minutes a day. It's like exercise generally. One of mine is like drink a bottle of water in the morning. One of mine for a while, like I was like working from home. I was like struggling, like not working in my bed. I was just like stay in bed all day and that like was definitely impacting my productivity. So one of them was like work on desk. (laughs) How many days was I doing that? Or like make bed. And it's like small things like that, that like when I think about it, it's like dumb that I'm keeping track of it. But when I look or I do the like little check at night, I'm like, okay, good. I did that. And like, I can see the benefits that had on my day. So just like holding yourself accountable is another way to, I think, help promote self-care, even though it's very hard, but it also helps you heal in a way that you're accepting yourself. Because I think something that I struggle with a lot is, I don't know why, because I don't know exactly what I'm comparing myself to, is that I feel like a lot of the ways that I do things are wrong compared to like what other people are doing or how other people live their life. And like the older I get, I realize there's no like one right way to do things. And I know that I can articulate that, but I still feel like what I'm doing is wrong. So like working on acknowledging that everyone lives their life differently. Um, Everyone has different habits. Everyone has different preferences. Not everyone is going to want to work out and drink a bottle of water in the morning, but Mm -hmm. you need to do what's good for you. And like, that doesn't mean that's going to be good for me. Um, so it's just like a thing I think of self-acceptance in a way. Yeah, exactly. Um, honestly, I could talk about self-care all day. It's like one of my favorite <laughs> topics. Um, so thank you for mentioning all those things that work for you. And I think you're right, you know, like it, you have to find stuff that works for you. And that mm-hmm. takes a lot of like experimenting or just like maybe like journaling, maybe just mm-hmm. like thinking about stuff that you do like to do, stuff that helps you restore your energy And also, I really love that point you made that like about self-compassion. So Mm -hmm. when you can't achieve that that self-care item or when you don't feel like or you don't get to it, 
to have compassion for yourself instead of getting critical of yourself mm-hmm. or like, you know, feeling guilty about not doing it. Cause then that's like the opposite of what yeah. self-care is supposed to achieve. So to, to give, to make room for like self-forgiveness and compassion for yourself, if you can't get those things done mm-hmm. is really important and also a part of self-care as well, which I think is a really good point you brought up too. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah, of course. Um, and then honestly, like I could talk to you all day. Like I, I love <laughs> this conversation. Having. Um, definitely want to talk to you more in the future, but um, I think like, I would just like to end on how we use our platforms, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and even though like, however small or big of a platform we have, I think it's really important um, to do that. Uh, so if that's, you know, what you're into and stuff, and I know that you also use your platform to mm-hmm. spread awareness and stuff like that too. So mm-hmm. I want to hear a little bit about like how you do that. Yeah. So I think my biggest, like, I guess, community platform would be Instagram. A while ago, I made my page public and that was because I was a rent the runway ambassador. I still am, but like, I don't rent clothes right now because I'm not going to work. And so okay. that was like a big thing for me where I was like, oh, like, I have like followers that are kind of listening to what I or like not listening, but like care about what I say and they want to know what I think. Um, and I think I used to limit like the political stuff I'd put on there. But as of recently, like you mentioned before, I was doing like Supreme Court summaries and like I'll talk about like different laws that passed when the pandemic first started and the first um, CARES Act, the one that gave like the $1,200 stimulus check came out. I did like a Q&A and like I provided, like I just answered people's questions because I realized like platforms like Instagram allow people to have so much more accessibility to information. And it's not just like the fun, lighthearted information. It's the things that you need. Like I didn't realize like I no, I do realize now that like the access I have to information and the understanding because of my job and because of my education is different than other people. And that's not in a bad way, but I do want to use it. I do want to use the platform to help have a positive impact and like answer people's questions that they would maybe think were dumb or afraid to ask. Something that I always say about any legal question, any question about how the government works. Like, I'm like, no question about that is dumb because like people go to school to like just learn the basics and they still don't know. Like, it's okay to ask these questions. And I want, I think I want to work on using my platform more on like helping educate people on how things like that work. Because I think right now we're, we're pretty much, we are in the second civil rights movement and there's a lot of advocacy happening. I want to continue to use my Instagram as like an accessible way for people to learn more about government and advocacy and laws that are passed. Um, Because as people become more aware of like what's going on in the news, I think a lot of headlines are helpful, but misleading. But headlines are sometimes the way that people are getting the news, especially when you're just like, you're doing your day, but you want to keep up, you get your news notifications, then you're like, okay, like, this law passed, this Supreme Court case happened, like, this thing is happening. Um, And not everyone has access to, like, read the New York Times or wants to read the New York Times because it can be boring. And so something that I want to do is kind of be more active about just, like, general national news and, like, Wisconsin news, because that's where I'm from. (laughs) Um, But I am working on how to do that. And one of those ways that I started was doing like summaries of Supreme Court cases that were passing. And 
I am very behind on that now because when I started, I was doing it in my stories, which is like a lot less pressure (laughs) and a little easier. Um, But I was getting a lot of requests from people to make it into one video because sometimes they would miss a point and want to go back or like they're going through their story, but they're at work. So they don't have time to listen to everything. Um, And I I had subtitles. I didn't have subtitles on my first one, but I started doing subtitles. So then it got kind of intimidating because I would like make a video. Well, I tried to. I tried many times. There's you guys can't see right now, but there's like a stack of boxes that I put like my phone on in my room. And you're like, (laughs) okay. Um, And so the pressure with that kind of increased it. And I know like now for 2020, the Supreme Court isn't releasing any more opinions, but I think I'm still going to do the cases that I missed because people still want to know. Um, and so like, that's something I'm going to start with. I think I'll take, I'm happy to like do what people want to know about. I'm not an expert in anything, but I can like, I'm willing to do the research and talk about it and answer questions and tell you when I don't know. Um, so I definitely want to use that as like an educational platform, but also like fun. Like I like posting about my cool coffees or like things in DC and just like showing that I'm not. I mean, I am a serious person, but like being a lawyer doesn't define me in any way. Like I have other parts of me that I like to show and I want to show. Um, And I think it's important for other people to see that, Um, especially other people, other maybe minority women who are seeking a career similar to mine. Um, When I was growing up, I thought I only could be one type of person. I was like, I have to be serious I have to be a lawyer all the time and that's just like gonna be my vibe because otherwise I won't be successful and that's just wrong like a lot of people were out there having fun and still made it and like you can do that like you just have to balance your time and now I'm like okay be my career doesn't define me and I think careers defined baby boomers but careers don't define millennials because we have four or five of them (laughs) and we're just on our first ones and it's just different now so I think social media has become like a blended it's not just fun it's not just educational um I think that I want to make my like Instagram a good mix I'm working on that I'm also on Twitter but it's nothing like I tweet very sporadically, like sarcastic things, and then like retweet a lot. Um, so I am on there. So if you want some random funny content, follow me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's that's all great. And like like I mentioned in the beginning, like I myself find those breakdowns to be super helpful. And I'm so happy that you know, like you're taking a step forward with that. You know, like trying to figure out new things, like using video and mm-hmm. stuff like that. Uh, and I'm really excited to see all that. So I'm Thank definitely you. Be, like, looking forward to that. <laughs> um, and yeah, I think like going back to what we were talking about before is like, how do we break down the stigma mm-hmm. and how we mentioned that it starts with just having conversations. Yeah. And also, I think a, there's a lot of negatives to social media, but I think if used mindfully, it can be very positive as well. Yeah. And it can be used as a tool to break down those stigmas as well yeah. and to have those conversations and I think it's also awesome how you like post about your life too and about like more fun things. Cause that shows that we are three dimensional people, which mm-hmm. can also be lost on social media yeah. when people just show like one or two dimensions of themselves. Mm-hmm. So, um, yeah, I think those are all great points and I'm really looking forward to like seeing your videos Thank and you. You know, your breakdowns and also your coffees and your fun <laughs> fun content as well. I got a ring light for my videos. So 
I love watch. That. Stay tuned <laughs> for my beautifully lit face. <laughs> love that. Gotta have the lighting right. Yes. <laughs> yeah. So um, I also want to just like have some space for you if you have any concluding thoughts or anything you want to mention before we wrap things up. I want to have some space for you now to do that. Thank you. I think I would, I just want to add that I'm very appreciative of this opportunity. Um, I was honored when you asked me um, and this conversation has been so fun and I hope whoever's listening and has listened through, um, feel free to reach out to me about like anything. If you're looking for a career on the Hill, if you have questions about law school, if you want to talk about fashion or the Supreme court, like let's chat, let's be friends. Um, so I'm really appreciative of having the opportunity on this platform and also love your podcast. So thank you so much. (laughs) Thank you so much. That was so sweet. (laughs) I definitely appreciate you so much for your time and This conversation was so amazing and so helpful for me, too, and so healing as well and very therapeutic. Mm -hmm. And the thing I love about doing this podcast is that it allows me to connect with people and also Mm -hmm. reconnect with people. Um, So I think like maybe if I didn't have this platform maybe I wasn't able to have the opportunity to reconnect with people in this way. So um, thank you again for your time and all your insight and like sharing your personal experiences and stuff. I think it's very valuable, um, definitely very helpful for people to like relate to or listen to. And I know you're a busy lady doing (laughs) amazing things. So I really appreciate your time. And also like, uh, thank you for offering for like people can reach out to you and mm-hmm. stuff. So how can people find you if they want to? I think Instagram would probably be the best way that you'd rather talk about over like another platform. You can we can start there. I can give you my email and phone number, but like Instagram and Twitter, I love the DMs. <laughs> I always check them. <laughs> like in a not creepy way. I'm like, yes, someone's like slide in those DMs. Yeah. Slide into my DMs, please. Yeah. <laughs> so that's probably the best way. And then we can go from there. <laughs> okay, awesome. And I will like link all of those into the episode Perfect. as well. So yeah, thank you again so much for your time. This was a lovely conversation. Of course. Thank you. As always, I thank you for listening and staying tuned. If you like this episode, feel free to share it with the people in your life. I would also really appreciate if you would subscribe to Synergy Cast on whatever podcast platform you prefer, give it a five-star rating, and leave a good review mentioning what you like about the podcast. You can also follow the Instagram for updates at SynergyCast, and I have also included that in the episode notes. I have now a new feature, which is a voice memo feature, which I am very excited about. So if you would like to send in your thoughts and your feelings or your personal experiences, feel free to record a voice memo and send it my way. I would love to include your voice in the next podcast episodes. Lastly, if you are willing and able, there is another new feature where you can donate however much money you want to help support SynergyCast financially. If you do choose to donate, the money would help me pay for several things. It would help me pay for myself, my own energies, my own efforts, and also the money would help pay my future guests especially people of color for their time, since I believe it is very important to compensate people of color 
especially for their time and energy, since many BIPOC, which stands for Black, Indigenous, and People of Color, have a history of being taken advantage of and underpaid or not paid at all for their efforts. So any and all ways you choose to support would be very much appreciated. Thank you for listening and stay tuned for more episodes coming your way soon. Stay safe, everyone, and take care.